Welcome to Heartbeat of Humanity, a podcast series for staff and volunteers in the Red Cross Red Crescent movement, working with mental health and psychosocial support services. My name is Ea Susanna Kasha, and I'm a technical advisor working for the IFRC Psychosocial Center. World Children's Day marks the adoption of the Convention of the Right of the Child, and this year the theme is to stand up for children's rights. In today's episode, we're focusing on how caregivers can support their children who are in difficult and challenging situations. They may be living through a major disaster or in displacement. There could be illness in the family, or they may live through an armed conflict. In such situations and in such periods in life, children need more care and support. They need to feel and be safe in the company of the caregivers. In today's episode, I'm with Mushta Gazemiani, a psychologist working who's been working all over the world and currently working for MSF. Mushta, would you tell us a bit about yourself? Thank you for having me today. Um, my name is Mushta, as you said, and uh, I'm a psychologist. I've been working with uh, children and adolescents um, for well, soon to be 20 years um, all over the world, many different places um, and uh, different organization. Um, so basically, that's uh, my professional background. But could you also give us a bit about your own background? I know that you have been living and you grew up in a very tense environment and you yourself had to flee with your family. Indeed. Um, I call myself a, a child of the war um, because I think there is a whole generation of children growing up uh, in an environment and being born into an environment of of war disaster um, in the world and I was one of them um, and we fled uh, basically six months after I was born. First I was in jail with my mother uh, and then uh, internally displaced in in Iran for three years, um, and after that uh, in refugee camps in Iraq uh, for about um, 10, 12 years. And um, we were so lucky that after uh, the Gulf War that we were able to uh, come to Denmark as quota refugees. So I was 16 when we came here. and. Um, um, had to start over and reintegrate in a new society and basically learn what it means to live and not survive all the time mm. with the symptoms that you have after um, a journey like this uh, in your life as a child. And we're exactly going to have some of your experience, your professional and personal experience, because we're going to talk about what can caregivers do to support children who find themselves in such adverse situations and maybe for a protracted time, length of time. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what are some of the symptoms? Could you begin by telling us what are some of the signs, symptoms, reactions to be aware of if you're a caregiver? Yes, I think... Uh, a lot of time it's difficult for the caregivers to see what is going on mm. with their children because there's so much going on with themselves also. And also it's about survival right now. Um, so they don't always see or hear uh, what is uh, happening with the, with, the, with the child. So most children will try to take care of their um um, the adults around them. And I'm saying adults because not every child in these situations have their parents um, not lucky enough to have that. Um, and 
what they do is they try to do everything that they can to make the adults around them happy. Um, that's why you probably see a lot of children smiling, even though it's in a disaster or a war situation. Um, but generally, uh, these children will show symptoms psychosomatically. Um, they will have um, pain in their stomach. They will have small infections, um, sore throat that comes up again and again. It did for me when I was a kid. Um, uh, headaches, um, and not being able to sleep, nightmares, bedwetting. Um, a lot of the kids will uh, go down in their developmental stages, which means some of the kids who are two or three or four, they start becoming clingy and more like a baby than they have been before. Um, and then, of course, there is... Uh, uh, the older uh, kids who would uh, uh, react with anger um, or, um, um, you know, you, you will see them because they're crying, they're shouting, they're, um, it's very visible that they're not doing well. Um, and that's easier for a lot of um, uh, adults to take care of and, and, and do something uh, to help them because it's visible. It's that invisible pain um, that the children have, the silent kids that a lot of time is difficult to for caregivers to know that they have to do something about. Mm. And I have to say that I have seen in, in, in Greece, unfortunately, um, in the refugee camps there, that some of the kids, and, and that is, you know, um, we don't talk a lot about that. Some of the kids can be so affected that they actually stop talking, stop walking. Um, and um, there is all their functions actually just stop working. Um, uh, and that is also a way to make adults around you uh, see the suffering that you're going through. But at the same time, you, the kids can be so overwhelmed that their whole system can shut down. And we have to also talk about these kids because I think, unfortunately, there will be more and more of them in the refugee camps. Right. So you've given us uh, a wide array of symptoms. But one thing that struck me is you said that um, very often caregivers or parents, caretakers, they're not really aware um, because they themselves are so worried. They don't know what's going to happen. They have all these existential thoughts about where are we going to go? How am I going to take care of my children? So um, in the beginning, you mentioned that caregivers need to be aware of themselves and their, or that's my interpretation, caregivers need to be aware of their children and to be able to see them. So what can they do for themselves in order for them to be able to, to actually see how the children are doing? Um, it depends of in the situation, I would say, you know, if it's about, uh, you know, surviving here and now, um, the main focus for uh, every adult who has kids is to make sure that their kids will survive. That's the first thing. Um, and if the bombs are falling around you or if there is no food, so you do the basic things to make sure that your kid have that. Um, but what uh, I remind all parents, no matter where they are, 
the most important thing that they can do, and it's adults in general who are around uh, kids in crisis, is making them feel safe and make them feel seen, even if it's for five minutes or ten minutes. I have this image of even myself when I was a kid. Most of my childhood, you know, the pictures that comes up is me looking up at my mom and my mom, um, you know, looking away. So I'm seeing the back of her head and she's singing or she's cooking, she's crying, she's fleeing. No matter what situation that I think about, that's what I see. This longing to be seen, this longing to uh, be heard, but at the same time as a kid, the worry, the enormous worry that I had for my mom. Because what children know is, uh, especially in crisis, if my parents die, if they're not doing well, then I will die. Mm. So they are 100% dependent on the safety of their parents. So the again, what the parents can do, make them feel safe, not only with everything that is, you know, externally, but actually looking at their children, telling them that I am okay, and I can take care of you. I'm still the parents, and everything will be okay, because I can do that. It doesn't mean lying to them, but at least saying that I will always do everything in my power to make sure that we can be safe. I cannot guarantee that, but that's what I'm doing. So one thing um, maybe to be very mindful of is that children who uh, seem to do well may be as affected as, as those who have symptoms and visible signs of being distressed. If you're placating, if you're smiling, if you're always trying to be the good little boy, girl, Uh, child, um, because then you may be taking, trying to take care and and ease the the pain of the of the adults around you. So that's a very important first point. And then being feeling safe by being seen and heard. So how can you talk to children? Can we move into that? Um, how do you how do you then talk to children about the situation they're in? And I know when we say children, it can be from you know from being born to being eighteen. But what are some of your advice yes. on talking to children about the difficulties they're in? Mm. I think the biggest mistake that um, uh, caretakers uh, do is uh, thinking that they will protect their children um, by not talking about what is going on. And and you know when I think about my childhood, it's 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 amazing. And also the the parents that I saw in refugee camps. In, the situation is so obvious. You know, the the children is they are hearing the the shootings, they are seeing the disasters around them, and even then there is this need of protecting them and not telling them what is going on. Mm. Um, but what they a lot of parents do is they they talk about the situation together mm. while the child is maybe sleeping still listening, hiding somewhere, 
or even sitting there because they have a gathering of adults together. So this is an, a direct way to talk to the kids that will damage them because many of these children are too young to actually be able to contain what the adults are talking about and have uh, you know imaginary thinking and they imagine it much worse than what is uh, being described maybe. Um, so the best way to talk to the children is actually making time um, where there is just, you know, 10 minutes of calmness somehow, um, where you, again, are aware of how you're doing and trying to be calm, trying to, um, it, it, it doesn't mean that you don't have to show your feeling because children know that what is going on with their parents. Um, so telling them um, in, in very short and concrete way what is going on, what will happen, and they answer their questions. Um, so be honest, be realistic, and talk to them in a way that they are encouraged to ask questions. And then you answer them without sugarcoating without dramatic, tra making it more dramatic. That's what you're saying, is it? Yes, it is. Uh, you know, and again, to make it very concrete, my mother was uh, injured during the war. Um, I was there. She was shot in her face 12 times. I saw all that. But even then, um, my uh, father and the other adults around us, they really thought the way they could protect me is by not talking about the fact that my mom suddenly disappeared for a year and I didn't know what was going on. And at the same time, there was war. You know, the day she disappeared, there was bombs uh, everywhere. We were fleeing. Um, and I had no idea who I was with because m my dad wasn't there either. So suddenly you're with adults that are not your primary caretaker. Um, but the way they have been trying to protect me throughout my life is not telling me details of what is going on. But I always imagine that every time my mom went to the hospital and didn't come back, that she wouldn't come back, that she died. So I imagined the worst. Um, um, the simple way uh, that uh, the adults could have actually just talked to me is by, first of all, just look at me and say, I see you. You must be really scared right now. So validating the feeling that I was going through, um, even helping me to put words um, uh, that would explain what was going on, what I was thinking, what I was feeling, because a lot of children are not able to do that. So sometimes it's also good to even use a third person uh, reference. Um, I know another child who has been through this and the way they reacted was this and this. Is that how you feel? And it's okay if you don't know how you're feeling. Um, but But... Again, um, making sure that they know that they're safe and making sure that um, they know that their um, caretakers are also going to be safe somehow or somebody's actually doing something to make sure um, to let them know what is going on around them. 
So not being in the dark is really important because your anxiety just goes, you know, crazy as a child. Um, yeah, and not feeling alone. So you're talking about how you as an uh, as an adult or caregiver can help the child regulate their own emotions so that they don't have all these internal fantasies about what was going on by just sitting with them, being with them, um, telling them what you see, um, talking about other children who have gone through similar experiences and asking them, helping to put words to their emotions. In that way, they get to know themselves and to know their reactions. And also by by sort of uh, rounding it off by talking about you yourself um, as a caregiver, that can also help regulate how they feel and their emotions. That's what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. You know, normalizing what they are going through, um, normalizing that, um, you know, I can be scared too. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sad also. Um, sometimes I have difficulty sleeping as well. Um, so knowing that it's okay to feel the, the way they are feeling, they don't have to hide these feelings in order to protect the, the, the parents or the t- caregivers. Um, I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, there's uh, there's just something that comes to me um, after when I've been deployed to emergencies when children keep making the same drawings again and again of the most traumatic moment um, on their life. And um, what kind of advice do you have when this happens, when they keep going over and over it? It can be nightmares, it can be drawings, it can be they talk about it. I think it's... Um it's a way of trying to make sense of what happened um, and also an invitation uh, to talk about um, what is really difficult for them to make sense of. Um, some of the kids that I work with in South Sudan, they didn't draw specifically what had happened, but they draw um, snakes, for example or um, other symbols that they knew in their culture that symbolized something that was dangerous, something that was uh, sneaky, you couldn't trust, it would come up and attack you. So it's not always directly you can translate what they are drawing. Um, The cultural aspect is also really important to remember, especially for unaccompanied children, um, you know, children who lose their parents, and then there are caregivers from another culture taking care of them in the uh, refugee camps or other places in the world. Um, but what they are basically trying to do is an invitation of, you know, help me understand or um, not wanting also to be alone with these thoughts, uh, these images that is in their mind again and again. And most of the time, they really don't know what to do with it. So so um, it, talking about the, the, what they are doing, but at the same time, um, you know, being making sure that it's in their pace. So you don't uh, push them to talk about something that they don't want to talk. Um, and helping them maybe through play um, to make sense of what happened. 
and and children they can't really be in the mindset of thinking about uh, horrible things that happen to them in a very long time. They do that, you know, they do the drawing and maybe that's it. They just want to go and do something else because it's become too much for them. Um, so, again, normalizing it. And allowing them to digest at their own pace. Exactly. Yeah. I love how you translate things. No, that I, I think it's a, it's a, yeah. a, yeah. And, and very good concrete advice. And I was also thinking maybe it would be interesting for our listeners if we move a bit to teenagers. Because what we've been talking about will also apply for teenagers, but, but they're also going in, you know, they're developing, they need to find their own independence, their own way. And they may be going through these very difficult times where it can be to that to find that individuation, becoming a, a separate person in an individual can be very difficult. So how do you talk to teenagers about war, about crises, about conflict, about disasters? Well, they are in an age where they actually understand what is going on around them. And that means also that they know how serious it can be. Um, they know essentially that they can die, that their parents can actually die, they can be alone. And they, their sense of responsibility for their younger siblings and for their parents is enormous. Um, and at the same time, um, they're they're taken away. You know, if if it just happened, in, you know, while they were at that age, they were taken away from everything that they knew, um, they care about, and they had imagined a, a future that looks very different from what they are in right now. Which means they are also grieving, grieving the loss of what they um, left back home. They miss everything that is back home. But at the same time, I would say they're not able to let go of what is back home. So so um, figuring out who you are as um, an individual becomes really difficult because you see yourself as a unit, as your family. That's your safe base. So... Um, and without that, it's really difficult to survive. So many of these other lessons would have difficulty to really having someone they look up to and see that's how I want to be. Um, um, and there is huge stigma when it comes to refugee, um, the whole you know notion of being refugee. And many children, uh, adolescents, they don't want to have that stigma with them and you we see that with the um, Ukrainian uh, refugees especially that I have seen in Denmark that um, you know they just don't want to have that label um, they want to be seen as young people um, they want to be seen as individual who have a future who have their uh, own mind uh, who can speak up who um, have dreams um, and they will be, you know, they, they, they adapt to the new situations also much more quick than their caregivers. Um, so that's a challenge for the caregivers because they have to still uh, care for them, make sure they're safe and, and see them 
as yes. you talked about before, because a need does not disappear even though you're a teenager. You want to be seen, yet you want to be left alone. Yes. So so what what is really, um, I have said a lot of things, but if you have to remember one thing when it comes to um, adolescents, um, is that they are in a period in life where they, they are in transition. Yeah. And every transition in life, especially for... Um, traumatize children um, and young people, adults. You know, it that is um, really difficult. It's difficult for uh, any t- you know adolescent to go through life, but especially if you are in a situation that is crisis, um, and going through transition without support because your caregivers are not able to be there for you at the same way they could have been if they were at their homeland or if everything was good. Um, And not being able to rebel against uh, your parents or the adults that is around you, which is, you know, an important part of the transition. Um, It makes it difficult to find... um, you know, freely go out and be creative and just find yourself, figure out who you are. Um, And also the lack of communities that you can become part of. You really don't have much choice a lot of times. You have to be part of the refugee community that you're part of, uh, you know, become a part of. Um, A lot of the young people that I have worked with, what they say again and again is very simple. I just want to be young. I want to have mm. friends. Um, and I want to think about, you know, uh, going to school, um, my future. I want to have um, boyfriends, girlfriends, um, you know, just the normal things in life um, that are, they are going to be deprived of. Um, they want to be seen as young people first and then refugee next. But it's interesting because I was remarking when you talk about the losses, grieving the losses of what you've left, the dreams that you have to leave behind. But there's also the symbolic dreams that you had for the future. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That hasn't come to fruition yet. You also have to, you know, they have to be adapted to what's a new reality. Yes. And that's also a loss. That is one of the most difficult things to do. When I came to Denmark and I was 15, 16 years old, you know, I have spent all these years in refugee camps dreaming. Basically, that's one of the things that made me survive. You know, we would be lying... um, no matter where we are, we're outside and we, me and my siblings, we would look up in the sky and there will be these, you know, stars coming and we were making wishes. And it was the same wish all the time is for me, you know, I was silly, but the, I just wanted to be in a classroom where everybody looked like me. Where my name was not different. People didn't know that I didn't belong. I was just like them. Mm. And they loved me. (laughs) And um, when we came to Europe, I really, you know, the only thing I wanted to do was when do we start school? When do we go to school? I wanted friends. I wanted to be, you know, with everybody else, like everybody else. Um, And that dream was, you know, shattered the first day I started school because nobody would talk to us. 
suddenly the language that I had, even though I could speak English, you know, the sounds that they came out of my mouth were not recognizable. People didn't want to talk to us. And then there's the discrimination that you have to um, endure for many refugee children and adolescents. Suddenly, you know, instead of you're so self-aware as an adolescent about your body, how you look like, who you are, um, you want to fit in and at the same time rebel. And all that opportunities was kind of taken, care, taken away from us or from me. And at the same time, the dreams that I had for my future were taken away. Um, so that is when the depression actually come. Mm. That is when the de- uh, despair come. Um, and uh, that is the time where you really have to be aware of, you know, uh, what they are going through. So that's when a lot of uh, um, caregiver things, now we're safe. Now the kids going to be doing well. Um, and that's in the safeness, um, in that feeling that they will start um, feeling all the feelings that they were not able to um, give place in their body, in their mind, in their souls. Um, and the loneliness, if there is nobody there to pick them up, um, will be devastating. So they will need their caregivers even more than they did when they were uh, fleeing or when there was a disaster. Yeah. And yet you had very strong dreams and aspirations that led you to where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and also, dreams, the dream, I'm sorry, yeah, it's I'm so sorry. interesting how important the dreams are, how much you stress that, the, the ambition, the aspiration, the dreams, what they can do. They carry you through. There may be a time when they break down, but still if you manage to rebuild that dream and rekindle it, um, then you may be able to really survive and succeed. Yes. So ending on that very intense um, note. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Moshte. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to um, you know, be the voice of the kids. Yeah. You've been listening to Heartbeat of Humanity, a podcast series for Red Cross, Red Crescent Movement staff and volunteers about mental health and psychosocial support. In this episode, Moshte Gazemiani has been talking to us about how to support children who live in very adverse life situations. You can find more resources about mental health and psychosocial support on the IFRC Psychosocial Center website. Resources include manuals, webinars, policy documents, program materials, educational videos, and information about upcoming trainings. My name is Ia Susanna Kasha, and I hope you have enjoyed listening to this Heartbeat of Humanity podcast. Remember that mental health matters.